Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Following hot on the heels of Joanne Harris in our last episode, today I'm delighted to have as a guest on the Folklore Podcast another best-selling author working with folklore, Natasha Pulley. Natasha read English literature at Oxford University before progressing to take a Master's in Creative Writing, a subject in which she now lectures. In 2013, Natasha travelled to Japan to study on a scholarship for 18 months. Whilst there, she learned the language and absorbed the Japanese culture in which she had always been fascinated, researching what would become her first book, The Watchmaker of Filigree Street, a novel which, although set in a very real Victorian landscape, explores issues of clairvoyance, magic, superstition and much more. Her latest novel, The Lost Future of Pepper Harrow, continues the story of the characters further, taking them to the Japan in which she is so interested. The watchmaker of Filigree Street spent most of 2016 in the bestseller list, picking up a Betty Trask Award, as well as being shortlisted for the Author Club Best First Novel Awards. Natasha joined me recently to talk about both her books and Japanese culture and folklore more generally. And do stay tuned at the end of this episode for a very special musical guest to close the show today too. Hi Natasha and welcome onto the Folklore Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Oh, thanks very much. So, uh, today I would like to talk with you about the themes in your writing that cross over into the areas of folklore from two of your books, particularly, uh, that is your debut novel, The Watchmaker of Filigree Street, uh, and its sequel and incredibly large book, The Lost Future of Pepper Harrow. Uh, that large? Come on! <laughs> not in terms of pages, but in terms of the fact that it's a hardback. Um, or the one that I have is a hardback at least, um, and I've been transporting it to and from work, and it's, <laughs> it's a weighty affair. You fool! <laughs> I know, I know. Um, I had to, I had to. I thoroughly enjoyed both of these. They are both books that are completely up my street, and I had a wonderful time reading both of them. But before we get into that, for, for the kind of 2.4 people who don't know about you and your work, um, can you just say a little bit about... Uh, who you are and and what you write about yeah absolutely and I'm sure it's more than 2.4 people <laughs> that's very nice of you to say um so I'm a historical fiction novelist um but I usually write historical fiction with a great big dose of fantasy in it as well partly because um I think it's very it's it's not short-sighted but it can be very staid to write completely straight historical fiction when history is so full and fertile with these amazing folklore stories um both real and imagined why not put them in why not put them into novels why not acknowledge that people believed this and if you're going to give a very true account of somebody who believes in something that we no longer believe you have to do it properly don't you you have to write like it's real um, so that's one of the big philosophies behind my writing. In The Watchmaker of Filigree Street and The Lost Future of Pepper Harrow, one of my big focuses is Japan, which is where I used to live. Um, and it's something that I'm very, um, I'm very worried about writing, kind of like as a, a middle class white lady. Um, but 
it is it's something that's really close to my heart and I'm really passionate about and I, I did spend years there and I speak Japanese and it's a wonderful wonderful country and I just want more people to know it Yes, and that's something I think I, I, I definitely would like to explore because Japanese culture is fascinating. Um, I've been watching at the moment, actually, on um, a particularly well-known streaming service that isn't Netflix, uh, a program called Prime Japan, which which is a that kind of gives away which streaming service it is. <laughs> they, they didn't make it actually. It's just a coincidental name. Uh, but um, it's a kind of a 12-part exploration of Japanese culture. Um, and the episode that I watched last night was about katana, for example, um, mm. and, and the way that swords were manufactured in Japan. And it, it's it's a beautiful programme, actually, beautifully shot and really in-depth into the culture. So, so this is quite timely in a lot of ways. Tell us how you ended up being in Japan. Um. So while I was at university and probably before that, I was really, really into Japanese culture. I was one of those kids who just grew up inhaling anime. So um, despite growing up in rural England, I was was surrounded by Japanese stuff all the time because that was what I was completely immersed in. Um, And I I really loved Japanese literature and Japanese poetry, which I studied a bit at university. Um, But all the while I was writing and I was very interested in stuff like the, the 19th century. But I just find it quite stale that often in England we like to pretend that London is the only place in the world (laughs) Um, and so one of the things I got really interested in was you know what what were the links between Japan and England in this period and there there are a great many I ended up going to Japan um, on a scholarship from an amazing charity called the Daiwa um, Anglo-Japanese Foundation they're funded by the Daiwa Bank in Tokyo and um it's a two-year scholarship you spend a year learning Japanese and then most of a year um working in a job uh in Tokyo or and living with with Japanese families so it was just the most incredible opportunity and I I only heard about it because one of one of my friends went and she went oh Natasha this is for you <laughs> so I, I applied that night um, and I've I've never been more proud or, or happier to get a scholarship. Yeah, um, yeah, it was I'm sure an amazing experience. Now, um, you would have come across various aspects of of Japanese law, both in your interest in Japan prior to going over there and the time that you spent there. So, uh, what makes Japanese folklore and and belief particularly distinct from from what we find um, in Western countries, for example? Well, so one of one of the things that um, I actually love so much about it is that it's actually very similar to ours, um, even though this is a nation that is 6000 miles away and culturally incredibly different. Um, a lot of its folklore is extremely comparable and extremely similar. And I think that's largely because the landscape is very recognisable. One of the things that we that we always hear about Japan is it's this incredibly volcanic country. And it is. And, and volcanoes are strange and dangerous. And there's there is folklore around the volcanoes. But obviously, nobody lives on a volcano. Nobody. People live around the people live um, further down the mountains and near the sea. And this is a place with eerie forests and salt marshes and quite a cold climate in the north um, there's an island called Hokkaido and it is the southernmost place in the world where the sea freezes 
Um, so it's not necessarily the country that people envisage when they when they think about the Far East. It's not a hot climate. It's not full of kind of, you know, fire spirits or desert spirits in any way. Um, when people talk about spirits in Japan, like the kami, the gods, it's often spirits of the trees um, that they're talking about. Like forests are really, really important. Um, they have these remarkable silver birch forests that are the most eerie things to walk through so the landscape is it w w at walking around it as a, as a westerner you can feel quite at home mm. if you if you can forget the volcano and that's capped with sulfur and they really are <laughs> um, you you feel very very at home and a lot of the folklore feels quite familiar so they have ghost stories they have um they have stories of fox fire which is st elmo's fire which uh, we also have there are stories of the mountains and the forests and they're all they're slightly different to ours. But the main thing that I would say is the takeaway is that they're very, very similar, which I find fascinating. I, I think I think one aspect of Japanese folklore, which I th think is particularly rich, probably compared to ours, is, is their uh, ghost and haunting lore. And they have some cracking ghosts in Japan. They have some absolutely cracking ghosts. And one of one of the great things that I thought about Japan, and this might literally have just been the people who I was living with in the circle that I was with, um, they told ghost stories all the time. And if you didn't have a good ghost story, you weren't a proper human. Yeah. Um, and I, <laughs> one, one of the really interesting key things about, um, about Japanese ghosts is that they, they always hover slightly off the floor, which is really interesting. And they have this phrase, ashiganai, which means it has no feet. So if there are no footsteps, then it's definitely, definitely a ghost. And then my, my old landlady told me a story about being in college dorms once and she, she heard the balcony door open. I, I don't know how much you know about, um, about Tokyo, but all the buildings have these like very small balconies and everyone dries their washing off the balcony. And it's great because in the summer, it, everything dries in like eight seconds mm. and everyone leaves the doors open in the summer because it's sort of 39, 40 degrees. But that means that anyone can come in. <laughs> and she heard the door open and she thought it was her roommate. It was pouring with rain outside and she heard drip, 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 but no footprints. Excellent. So that was, so it's just um, there's such an awareness of kind of hauntings and ghosts. Mm. And, and is there I, a, sorry, is there a strong belief in that? Is it, or is it more a case of the, these are our myths and, and we enjoy the stories for what they are? Or is there an actual strong belief in it? I very much at risk of sounding as if I'm exoticizing. I think just from my own personal experience, this is not from scholarly studies. Mm. I think there is a more active belief in folklore and myth. And one of the reasons I think is behind this is um, the Japanese view of religion, which is really, really fascinating. So obviously a lot of people um, will say that they're Buddhists. And actually in a, in a, a recent study, well, not recent, a few years ago now, a recent study, 60% of the population said that they were Buddhists. But religion isn't so kind of strictly defined as it is in the in the monotheistic West. And in the same survey, 60% of people said that they were Shinto. So, so some people are definitely, definitely both. So there is this kind of a, a relaxedness and a willingness to believe in multiple things at once. And of course, we have it here. We have people who... Um, 
they would say that they're they're Protestant, which kind of uh, really belies any any belief in ghosts, but who also believe in ghosts. So we have that duality of belief here. But I think it's much more noticeable in Japan, where the walls of religion are less strict and they're more porous, and they allow for more in the way of folklore. Mm, yeah, and, and Japan as well, I think. And you find this in the religion, don't you? But in other areas as well, ritual is very important and is a very key part of a lot of Japanese culture. Yeah, so it used to be, (laughs) when I lived there, um, it used to be a joke um, to say, oh, I'm doing nanikado, which means I'm I'm doing the way of something. Um, And it was, we'd come up with stupid things like the way of turning on the kettle. And it's because there is a way, a particular, often quite ritualistic way to do pretty much anything. Um, and, you, pe- and people will, it's, it's like an, it's an open joke. People talk about the way of the commuter. And it's just, you know, like the endless businessman getting on the train in a particular order. And it's, it's it, you know, life is stressful in Japan. It's a real rat race. But one of the things that make it less stressful is this, um, there's, it, it comes from, from, samurai thinking um there is a very strict way to do particular things so um there is a particular way to arrange flowers the famous one is there's a very particular way to make tea yes um and it is it from an outsider's point of view it can just look endlessly pedantic like if somebody says to you that they've spent 20 years learning how to make tea you kind of want to ask them why they've wasted their life and I like in a very insensitive way I did kind of bandy this around with my Japanese friends I was like what are you doing it's tea and they were you don't understand about tea pulley (laughs) Um, but what it is um I realized after about probably about after a year of living there is it's it's not necessarily that there is an objectively right way to do this it's that this is just the way that people do it in this in the same way that we have a set number of motions in ballet some of it is ballet and then other moves would not be recognized as ballet so there is a correct way and it's not that it is definitely the right way it's just that this is the way that everyone has agreed upon and it's choreographed and it's incredibly beautiful and it's like a dance yes yeah and you do see it don't you particularly in the tea ceremonies where you, know, you must rotate things through 90 degrees at a particular point and exactly and you know and this is beautiful but this isn't beautiful yes. it depends which thing you use and it's just and you look at it and to begin with it looks ridiculous but it is it's actually incredibly meditative because what it does, like the function, I think, is that it makes an ordinary task just difficult enough to force you to concentrate on it. So you can't think about something else at the same time. Like you can't like do the tea ceremony, but also be thinking about like, you know, what's going on at the office. Mm. It forces you to be single minded. And I think that's that's actually very good for you. Yes, yes, I think so. It does. It does focus focus the brain, doesn't it? Which which these days is particularly important, I guess. And I think it's no coincidence that we've seen kind of in in the younger generation, so millennials downward in Japan, um, a much renewed interest in things like learning the tea ceremony and very very traditional things. Oh, that's interesting, actually. Yes, yeah, because. I, I suppose the, the really older traditions like geisha traditions, they kind of almost in some areas become a tourist thing. Uh, and, and they I know very much are. Yeah, they are a tourist thing. And it's, it's because um, th- this isn't done quite in this way anywhere else in the world. 
Um, but I mean, I think one of the, the fascinating things about geisha is that you can only be a really good geisha if you're kind of 40 years old or older, because it takes that long to learn. Yes, yes. Uh, and there are these kind of uh, pseudo geisha tourist experiences, aren't there as well, which are which are not geisha, but but have the appearance of geisha. I mean, the thing, like, I remember um, my, my boss um, at a language centre uh, said to me once, "If you if you can afford it, she's not a geisha." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's quite accurate, isn't it? <laughs> okay, so let, let, let's move on to talk about your writing specifically. Um, have you always had an interest in the kind of themes that you're working with, in kind of folklore and and kind of more esoteric subjects, if you like, or is that something that you discovered along the way? I've always, always had an interest in that. Um, and I, I think it, I think it's just this famous thing um, where, you know, a kid looks at the sky and they, they don't think that dragons were there at one point. They know that they were. And I think if you, if you keep writing from an early age, you never quite lose the hope that, that potentially there could have been dragons. Yeah. Um, so I think, so I'm, I'm not writing about dragons, but I am pretty much writing about everything else. Um, so the Watchmaker of Filigree Street is about a, a, a man who can remember the future and the lost future of Pepper Harrow is about um, what happens when ghosts start turning up in Tokyo. Um, this kind of thing just really fascinates me. The things that are just behind the things that tend to get called uh, realistic, the things that particularly in the 19th century people really did think were true. Um, so it's just... I'm trying to do the 19th century justice, I think. Mm. Well, and you absolutely do. I think I think the, the description of the period, both uh, in London in the first book, although Filigree Street is is a, a, an invented street, the the um, the surroundings that you talk about are, are certainly not in many cases, and, and you do well. I, I've seen it described that that you twist fact and myth in your writing oh, which nice. i think is a good description because there is a lot of basis of truth particularly in the historical aspects of what you're writing isn't there but they do have this kind of fantastical twist to them which at the end of the day is what folklore is all about isn't it the stories changing yes um, one of the things that really uh, i think is just fantastic about the 19th century is that this is a period where science and folklore are the same thing mm. in many ways um, so for a long time, folklore had said, uh, there are ghosts. Um, it's possible to communicate with ghosts. Um, it's possible to, um, to have an experience that is outside your own cranium. Hmm. But it's in the 19th century that we see science appear to confirm this really for the first time. Um, we get Isaac Newton talking about the luminiferous ether. So these, the, this stuff that permeates everything and that allows light to move. If it permeates everything, it permeates the human cranium, the human brain. And this provides the medium by which perhaps human thoughts and human souls can leave the human body. Mm. And the 19th, 19th century physicists are just fascinating. And you, you can read monographs and monographs. They disagree about everything. But one of the things they almost unanimously agree upon is the existence of this stuff, the luminiferous ether. And so this is a scientific mechanism that is confirming, officially, apparently, 
um, all the things that folklore has been telling people for centuries. And of course, this is why you see the rise in mediumship all through the 19th century. This isn't some fad. It is because science is finally appearing to confirm to people exactly what they had hoped was true for centuries. And obviously you, you, um, you have a character who can remember the future. So, so this is essentially what the Victorians would have termed clairvoyance. As exactly, exactly. Now, is, is that something that you've had a particular interest in or have particular thoughts about, or was this just a fantastic mechanism for plot development, which at the end of the day, it absolutely is, isn't it? So actually, the clairvoyance came first. I was so interested in what somebody would be like if they were to, if they were to understand and perceive multiple futures. Um, and I'd written a clairvoyant character before I found out really about the Victorian science behind why people thought this could be true. But once they had, I'd suddenly had a system for this, for this magic and this folklore. And I just reveled in it because it's so much fun. I love 19th century science. Um, the interest in clairvoyance had been there kind of for years and years and years. And I, I'd read um, as quite a young child, actually, probably quite too, probably too young. Um, I'd read um, Robin Hobb's books, um, the the Farseer trilogy and the, the, the Tawny Man trilogy or about bits in the fool. And she had written about a character called the fool who was a prophet and who kind of had visions and who 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 worked to change the world. And one of the things that really fascinated me about that is that th this guy kind of bothered to go and change the world. And I was endlessly, I was endlessly interested in the idea of, of what would happen if somebody just didn't want to do that. If that wasn't what they wanted to spend 24 hours of their day doing. So um, my guy's just a watchmaker and he, that's mainly what he wants to do. Mm. He has to stray outside it every now and then. Um, he does tweak the world, but very, very rarely. But but again, with all of the themes that you're dealing with, you're you're putting that twist into it because he's not just a watchmaker. He's an expert in clockwork, which means that he also creates the most wonderful automata, for example. He does. He does create automata. And um, he's he feels very guilty about this because they are anachronistic automata. Like the technology that he's using is probably about 30 or 40 years in advance of where it should be. And he sort of lives in endless fear that somebody will notice. Mm. Um, but he, but he just about gets away with it in the privacy of his own workshop. So, yeah. so he has like, little birds that fly around clockwork birds and he has, um, he doesn't trust himself to look after anything alive. So he has a, a pet clockwork octopus. Yes. And, and that's interesting because, because even with that and, and the, the, Octopus becomes a character in its own right. He, she? Yeah. Oh, Katsu, he. Yeah, it means Victor. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, he definitely becomes a character in his own right, but you're not just using technology that's 30 or 40 years in advance of your character's time period with Katsu, are you? Because, because no, Katsu becomes no, no. <laughs> a possibility in some of the things that he does too. And that's that extra twist that you add to it that makes it fantastical, yeah. isn't it? I think everybody should have one. It'd be like the new Furby. I know. I would, I would really love to have a, a clocktopus. That would make me really happy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, totally. But, um, there is folklore even surrounding the, the idea of automata, isn't there? Because if you look at some of the um, 
the Victorian automata. They weren't quite what they seemed anyway. I'm thinking of like the chess playing automata, for example, which had more human intervention than people realised. Of course. And, but I think there's something really wonderful about technology from this period, because it's really the first time that technology appears to the outside observer who's not a specialist, irreducibly complex. Mm. Like it's, it's easy to understand how plowshare works. And it's easy, even easy enough to understand how like a, a great big church clock works. But as soon as you get into things like automata, things that seem to move by themselves, even if they've been wound up and pre-programmed with a set of motions, um, it's one of those things where you couldn't just, a non-specialist couldn't just open it up and understand. Mm. You could be looking at a machine or you could be looking at something extraordinary and magic. You just don't know. And I think as soon as humans see something that we perceive to be irreducibly complex, we start telling stories about it, which is exactly why we have endless creepy stories about automata, why we have stories about haunted dolls and watches that do really peculiar things. And and I think this is why things like um, Philip Pullman's Northern Lights stories really work, because the alethiometer is that irreducibly complex thing. Like it could just be a machine, but there could be something extra in it as well. Yeah. And um, I guess there's just, it's out of people's control as far as what they can understand, isn't it? And, And when you've got that kind of idea, then it becomes otherworldly, even if it's grounded in this world, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think if there's any any real complexity in the making of something, you will get stories um, mythologizing it as well. I mean, I, I think swords are a wonderful example. Like they're not a complex device to look at. It's just a lump of metal that you hit someone with. But if you look at what swordsmithing is and the effort that has to go into firstly even making steel or making bronze before that, and then actually smelting a sword, the process of it is incredibly long very very difficult incredibly specialist and so I'm not at all surprised that in pretty much every country that ever fought with swords there are myths around swords Mm. so the Excalibur myth and there are myths around um, katana in Japan as well yeah but we see this everywhere and again I think it's about the the complexity of the process that makes the thing yes yeah now as far as far as um the clairvoyance and and future remembering aspect of your character is concerned. There is still something which throws him, isn't there? And that's something as simple as rolling a dice, for example. The the concept of fate or chance where somehow you can deal with multiple futures, which are hugely complex, but something simple, which is down to complete fate then throws that whole idea onto its head doesn't it what what do you think yeah, about this, this idea of so, the, so the rule with um Kate Mori who's the man who remembers the future um is that he can remember any possible future but possible is the really important word there because if something um if two possibilities are completely equal 
you won't be able to tell which one is going to come to pass. So randomness exists in this universe. Um, and I, I fell down a big quantum physics hole and I listened to lots of lectures from physicists. So I was like, yep, okay, randomness is real. Um, and so if you, if you throw a coin and you honestly decide that whatever decision you make is going to be determined by that coin, he won't know what your decision is, just that you're going to make it, which is exactly the same as anyone else would know. Mm. Yeah, and then it, the, it all becomes very kind of unreliable, doesn't it? The, the, tr the possible truths become very unreliable when, when you come down to pure chance. Exactly. And I really loved looking into... Um, chance and stochastic processes which are processes that are determined by random chance and they really come into their own in the second book the lost future of pepper harrow mm. um i did lots of research and went to kind of mathematical conventions and stuff and one of the brilliant things that i found out is that random numbers are really key um, in modern computing and so we generate random numbers all the time as a matter of course, just in order to keep the modern world going. Somewhere in France, San Francisco, there is um, a building with a massive wall full of lava lamps and um, machinery that records the movement of the wax blobs within the lamps because those wax blobs move randomly. And there are observatories that, um, that record random fluctuations of electricity in the atmosphere in order to feed that random data back into into mathematics faculties around the world um so this for my clairvoyant um is a huge problem because if you can power something with random numbers you can get around him yes yes and and yeah difficulties ensue let's let's difficulties let's, ensue spoilers <laughs> into this but there, there are problems <laughs> Now, another issue that comes up, particularly in Lost Future, I think, which which I find fascinating and certainly has has mega folklore attached to it, um, are conspiracies, and and there are lots of conspiracies within your plot. Um, what do you think about the, the 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 whole idea of conspiracy as storytelling? I think conspiracy is such a fascinating thing. And I, I think now we we tend to, we say conspiracy as if it's a kind of, um, as, as if it's an over-exaggerated, rather silly thing to talk about. But if you go back to the root of conspiracy, it's con with and spiro breathe like to breathe together to get together in a small room and speak so quietly that it's just above a breath because you don't want anyone to hear you i just think it's the most magnificent word um and i think one of the one of the things that i find um very interesting about japan is that just like the uk um for many many years it was it was really run by a, by a boys club um right at the top um of the of the social echelons and one of the things that i'm kind of trying to show in the lost future of pepper harrow is kind of how that works and then how it doesn't work and how it falls apart so how how you can get kind of big social movements going because of conspiracies but also pulling them apart um when it goes too far yeah and uh, the concept of the boys club i think is, is quite interesting but that's the, the there are very distinct class divides, particularly in Pepper Harrow. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, do do you find that um, within Japan you find the same things that you find 
in our own traditions and that is this idea that people from lower classes or people with menial jobs and so on are just therefore superstitious that absolutely can be the case um and i would say that the class divides in japan are even more noticeable than they are in this country so obviously in this country if you have a regional accent and you speak dialect you're much more likely to be working class the absolute same is true in japan but kind of even more so because they have levels of language that we don't have um they have this thing called keigo which is repulsive it's um I mean, it's not, it's lovely. It's extremely, extremely polite language and there are levels and levels and levels of it. So you'll use like the lowest level of Keigo like with your boss um, and your grandparents to so use the highest level of Keigo with the royal family. And it really does change the whole language. So like, the actual verbs will change and you, you will hear it in shops and at train stations. And this is why the announcements, if you speak a bit of Japanese, sound incredibly complicated. It's because you're being spoken to on high. Um, which English does have, but in a, in a much less degree. And so when you get that massive linguistic variation between the people at the top and the people right at the bottom, you will see massive cultural divides that happen almost because of it, because they almost can't communicate um, very effectively. But the way that someone really working class from Osaka speaks will be uh, like worlds away from the way that a manager speaks in Tokyo. Um, and so you do there, there is a class thing with regard to superstition, absolutely. But I think one of the really interesting things about Japan is that you see superstition go all the way through kind of the the social ladder. And it, even the idea of superstition, it's kind of it has a certain uh, Christian or monotheistic overtone because we kind of we 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 say that, oh, this one set of things, this is what we consider to be religion, and this is kind of good superstition. And on the other end of things, we say, oh, this is bad superstition, this is folklore, you shouldn't believe in this. But those two things, as we were talking about before, are not um, completely separate in the way that they are in the West. Yeah, I, I, the, the, you, I suppose you find these divides, don't you, both between class and between belief and so on. And sometimes they cross over and, and sometimes they don't. And the concept of language changing, depending on your politeness, I, I find fascinating. Actually, I suppose it, it kind of happens here. Yeah, and it's like we absolutely do it. Like, so the difference between like informal Japanese and Keigo is the same as saying like, "Oh, park yourself there, mate," and "Would you mind taking a seat?" Mm. Like, so English does do this, um, but Japanese just does it more, and it 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 draws more attention to those different registers of speech. Like, you you will be taught about this at school in a way that we tend not to be. Um, recent graduates who are just joining companies have to do like a two week training course on the correct Keigo to use. It's it's a bit intense. And of course, it's left over from from feudalism and samurai days when this is how you would speak to the to the local duke. Mm -hmm. Pepper Harrow deals a lot with ghosts and we've talked about ghosts. Mm -hmm. But again, we've talked about the Victorian science and the concepts of ether and, and your ghosts are not strictly speaking ghosts in the traditional sense, are they? They're like recordings. Mm. They're they're kind of imprints. So the the scientific basis of the fantasy idea is that ether exists. Um, now, if human thoughts can travel along it, perhaps it's a substance that can be imprinted. And I got very interested in Nikola Tesla and all the things that he has to say. And everything that happens in Pepper Harrow 
um, apart from the actual appearance of ghosts, everything that is done, all the, like, the huge, massive electrical experiments um, were really planned or really done by, by Nikola Tesla um, in America. So I've just sort of nicked it, moved it to Japan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so the idea is that ghosts are very much bound up with electricity. So the idea is that if you electrify the ether, you will see the imprints of what's come before. And sometimes you see people in densely populated areas or sometimes like way up on a mountainside, there's there's one point where they see the ghost of a dinosaur. So they just see whatever um, has been there or is imprinted for, for a significant reason. And I don't want to go too much into it. But no, no, it's no, all no, no. Um, but, yeah, so the, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> but, um, but so the, the ghosts aren't sentient. They're like, recording clippings of what's come before mm. and what gets recorded um is and why is is one of the big things that they have to find out in the book so we've got ghosts we've got clairvoyance we've got fate we've got uh ritual we've got a whole range of folk beliefs in these books do you approach any of them from the point of view of believing them in a factual sense or do you approach them from the point of view of believing in the concept and the kind of more Jungian approach of this means something to us subconsciously but not what is actually being portrayed? So for, for me it's the second one um, I, I think there's a there's a lot to be said for that Jungian approach I mean I do I do think I do think poor old Young has his problems, doesn't he? I mean, anybody who annotates an essay with a footnote that says this was revealed to me in a dream um, <laughs> is not full of bang up scholarship, I have to say. Um, like but, citing so, Wikipedia now. <laughs> but I, um, I do think there's a lot to be said for that. There are particular things that in particular cultures have meaning and they affect people in incredibly real ways. Like the act of belief um, does a lot to you. And I think there's a lot, you know, like we, we, we've all seen films where they say, oh, it only hurts you if you believe it. It's true. It does only hurt you if you believe it. But if you believe it, you're in such you're in such hot water. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm not the kind of person who anything like this ever happens to. I, I always have a camera. I'm the kind of person who really likes graphs with string and lines on them. I can teach creative writing, but I teach it with graphs. I'm even I managed to make even that boring. Um, <laughs> and so it I. I feel like I'm not, I'm probably not kind of open-minded enough to have experienced anything like this in a way that I would perceive as real. Mm. However, if someone tells me that they've seen a ghost, I'm never going to say, no, you didn't. Mm. No, because it's a personal experience. And where this is important is that, you know, I mean, my, my first book deals with um, the folklore of, of spectral apparitions of black dogs, a thousand years worth of that. And, What's important is is not that people believe they're seeing the ghost of a dead animal appearing in front of them. It's that they're all having a kind of shared experience culturally over many years. And it's why that is the case. And you hit the nail on the head with meaning. Meaning is what's key. Um, I, I teach an online course in as an introduction to folklore. And one of the first things that I say in that is that nothing has meaning. You know, a table is, is a piece of wood with four other bits of wood attached to it. We only ascribe the meaning of that being a table. Turn it upside down, you can use it for something else entirely. It's no longer a table. No, it's, exactly. It's... It, it, it can be an inefficient boat. Yes, <laughs> it absolutely can. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, culturally, we feed into this idea. Um, 
subconsciously we feed into it on a personal level we feed into it and and we ascribe what a symbol or an object or something means compared to what we experience around us don't we course and over over generations and generations particular objects and particular places become really heavy with meaning i think it's no coincidence that i mean as as carl young said there are lots of things that are kind of so old that most cultures recognize this as meaningful so ships towers gorges mountains rivers the sea we're kind of almost universally as humans we recognize that these are meaningful things to us the meaning will often vary a little bit between cultures but it's a it's a shared thing and often humans associate holiness with height altitude above the ground yeah. we just do um because and culturally I think, heaven is up there isn't it yeah, exactly. Um, and I think there are like, even if you're approaching a culture that is as um, as distant from the West as Japan, and bearing in mind that there was there wasn't a massive amount of communication between the West and Japan until 1859. I mean that we were aware of each other, but it was very illegal to go. Um, even with with cultures that have that little overlap there are so many things that are just sort of almost universally recognizable. And if you stare at it long enough, you go, yeah, that seems weird, but do you know what? It's just like this that I know all about. I understand where you're coming from. So in between these two books, you have another book called the Bedlam Stacks, which we've not talked about. And we've not talked about that because I'm going to try my best to get you to come back and talk about that on our other strand um, where we talk about book club stuff. Um, but then also, am I right in thinking that something else is on the horizon from you too? It is. There's a brand new book coming out in May next year. It's called The Kingdoms. And um, it's a it's a alternative history story about what might have happened if we had lost the Napoleonic Wars. So is this a diversion from the other styles of your writing? Is this focusing more on historical fact and and less on the kind of fantastical elements? Or are you still going to do the same idea of twisting? Oh, so there's very much a fantastical twisting. A guy falls through time. So it it does have a great big fantasy twist in it. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent. Uh, I shall look forward with great interest to seeing that one in the future. Uh, In the meantime... Uh, if people would like to find out more about you and your writing and your work, where would you like them to go and do that? Well, buy my books, please, please buy my books. I would really like that. I'm a very boring person. You don't want to know anything else about me. You can follow me on Twitter if you would really like to. Um, I'm at Natasha underscore Pulley, um, but mainly buy the books. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I will encourage everybody to follow you on Twitter because your Twitter feed is always interesting reading. So I shall put a link to that uh, in the notes for this episode. Uh, if you want to get hold of a copy of any of Natasha's books, and you absolutely should do that, um, then they are all available during the, through the usual channels. Support your independent bookshop and get them from there if you possibly can, unless you want to have an ebook. would be my advice to you. Does that sound fair? Absolutely. There we go. Natasha, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on and discuss your writing and the themes that you use within it, which like everything else that we've talked about are fantastical thank you so much thank you very much it was a pleasure i really enjoyed natasha's books and i'm certain that plenty of you will too so do seek out a copy from your favorite bookshop
Natasha will be back in the future to come on to the Folklore Podcast Book Club, which you can find on our YouTube channel. More episodes have gone online since the last podcast, so if you don't already subscribe for free, please visit www.youtube.com slash folklore podcast and make sure that you catch up and click for notifications for future episodes. The next in our popular Folklore Podcast Lectures series is coming up on Saturday the 14th of November, if you're listening to this episode on its release. Rich Blackett, the chair of the heathen organisation Asatru UK, will be presenting an illustrated talk on Black Jackie Johnson, an alleged black magician who was said to be feared by both locals and criminals, and who was reputed to have owned a copy of Agrippa's Manual of the Dark Arts. Rich has probably looked into this character in more detail than any other researcher, so it promises to be a fascinating talk. Do sign up for a ticket at bit.ly slash TFP lectures. As we enter another period of lockdown, we'll be doing everything we can to produce content to keep you all entertained. Thanks as usual to all of our Patreon supporters, without whom none of this would be possible. Their generosity keeps us going, and their continued support is currently being rewarded with new exclusive episodes on the Patreon page, in addition to the usual audiobook partworks and discounts on our other events. To join them and access a wealth of extra content in the Patreon back catalogue, please visit www.patreon.com slash the folklore podcast. And finally, on to our musical guests to close this episode. I was recently given a link to what has fast become one of my favourite watches of 2020. That is a performance of the song My Favourite Things, with the creepiest music video you could possibly imagine. Probably unsurprising when you consider that the lead singer is the daughter of a horror filmmaker and the sister of a cult comedian. The group responsible are Foxtails Brigade, headed by Laura Weinbach and Anton Patzner. I'll put a link to the video on the website, as well as the full bio for the band, but do check the Foxtails Brigade YouTube channel and their website at foxtailsbrigade.com for more. Now, as soon as I saw this video, I knew that I wanted Foxtails to appear on the podcast, and so I reached out to them. Laura and Anton have very kindly given permission for some of their original music to be played out on the podcast. And so, to close today's episode, here are Foxtails Brigade with their song, Last of a Dying Breed. Thanks for listening. See you next time. have forgotten florid sensibilities powdered hair and skin all rotten no longer a sacred thing for the
Save an unmarked face for thought. 